Episode number 75, Lauren Nimi, Honoring Storytelling Elders and Apprentices. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. This is Brother Wolf, and I am so glad that you have found your way here with us today, that you have come to this place, this place of searching for that particular light, that particular truth that is storytelling. And I am I am just thrilled that I have with me right here one of the deep thinkers, one of the the idea leaders, and that of course is Lauren Nimi. And Lauren has been thinking for many years about how we as a movement can improve ourselves, both as storytellers, but also as organizers, producers, and in terms of organizations. Lauren Nimi worked for 10 years in the school systems around the country, coaching and working inside the school systems to run storytelling residencies. He has a deep level experience working with organizations and, and nonprofits and um, in understanding organizational structure. He's been telling stories since 1978. Lauren is also uh, one of the founders of the Northland Storytelling Network. He was on the board of NSN for many years and was, in fact, the chair of the NSN board. And he is currently running the two chair storytelling events in the Minneapolis area. Lauren, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. So do you have a story you'd like to share with us? Well, why don't we why don't we have a little conversation first? Because the story inevitably will come out of the conversation. What would you say of the state of storytelling today? Um, I have two assessments. Uh, the the first assessment is that, in general, storytelling is exactly where it is now, where it was before the Renaissance, and that is to say that storytelling is an activity that goes on and with various degrees of organization inside a wide variety of communities. And that's all, that will continue. Uh, it, it, is, it is specifically culturally, ethnically, generationally based. You know, that's the universal we begin with. The second thing is, is that there's an, there is a storytelling renaissance which began in the 70s and which has produced a very particular expression of the storytelling art, of the performance art. And that, uh, that movement is at some risk. It is at some risk because so much of it has been identified with the baby boomer generation and the organization of festivals and the, organi- and the organizations that have come out of that have been pretty much held, <laughs> some of your listeners are not going to like this, have been held captive by the ethos of the Renaissance. And what would that ethos be? The essence of the, the storytelling renaissance is, is that this is valuable human activity, that this is uh, the, the, uh, the transmission of family values, that this, is, this stands in opposition to the maddening pace of a uh, contemporary world. Originally, at the beginning of the renaissance, part of it was the recognition, like in the folk music renaissance, was the recognition that ethnic traditions had value to offer us, and that by going back to those traditional ways and mining the, 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 the folk traditions, the fairy tale traditions, that there was meaning and value to be had and shared. But over the course of the 30 years of the Renaissance, the storytelling Renaissance, there's been a migration. And the migration has been, on the positive side, two personal stories. On the negative side, it has been two personal stories largely as humor. And so now one of the dominant forms and again, there are some listeners who are not going to like this. The dominant form of the platform storytelling in the United States is the humorous story. It is n- only slightly removed from stand-up comedy. In fact, one of the best storytellers in the United States, according to 
many standards of what storytelling in would be Bill Cosby. You could if you if you went to a Bill Cosby show in the late seventies or early eighties, you would be looking at something that looks a lot like storytelling. That's right. If you went to, and and in fact, if even if you went to a number of the contemporary community, if you if you went to George Carlin, bless his soul, his dear departed soul, and you look at the the whole of his performance, or you went to Lewis Black and you look at the whole of their performance, not the individual jokes, but the rise and fall of the entire performance, you'll see that in fact it is a narrative, and essentially storytelling is a conscious narrative. Storytelling is about you know the conscious identification, shaping, and passionate transmission of experience and imagination. So is it time, is it, is it a moment in the storytelling movement when we need to turn again to our elders? Well, it, interestingly enough, it's a, there, it's a moment in the storytelling community where a number of people don't e- have not recognized the elders and have not recognized their relationship with elders. In the larger context, we're at a moment in the storytelling community where what we really need to do if we're going to survive and prosper is we're going to have to embrace a much wider diversity of forms, a much wider diversity of venues, a much wider diversity of performance types, because the culture that gave rise to the Renaissance has moved and shifted. And if we're to be true to the culture, you know, there are a whole bunch of things that we've kind of ignored or don't aren't comfortable with need to be acknowledged. Let's talk about elders, because I have a particular interest in, in the issue of elders. I will be the first to say that I was significantly influenced in my storytelling, both in terms of style and substance and how I appreciate, think about it, by two people. And beyond those two people, there's a group of people, some of whom are my contemporaries, and some of whom are people who have passed from the scene, you know, who I look to. And by looking at their stories, by looking at their experience, by looking at their contributions, I have had a grounding in the depth and breadth of what I do and my understanding of the larger, the larger storytelling tradition. In, in my own personal experience, okay. So I self-declared myself a storyteller in 1978. I mean, literally, I'm sitting in the bar at the Edgewater Hotel in Madison, Wisconsin, at a arts conference, and uh, a woman leans across the table as I'm sipping my martini, and she says, how do you explain what it is you do? And without really thinking, I say, I'm a storyteller, that what I do is I help organizations and individuals identify their stories consciously. I didn't say consciously in those days. I would say craft their stories and tell their stories. And as soon as I said it, as soon as I said storyteller, I understood that, in fact, that that word had meaning and was true. It made sense of my experience. It made sense of the 10 years I had spent before that, both in college, uh, working as an anti-war and anti-draft organizer, working as a community organizer, working with juvenile justice offenders, being a high school teacher, all of those things, working as a community organizer in neighborhoods, all of those experiences, which would not be identified specifically as storytelling, all utilize storytelling in order to achieve their effect. And it also explained my, uh, became a way of explaining for myself my interest in, in folk tales, in fairy tales, my interest in imaginative fiction, my interest in science fiction, my interest in poetry more than anything else about my interest and my reverence for the spoken word. Here's the story. And here's the story about the reverence for poetry and the spoken word. In the summer of 1969, I'm at the University of Minnesota. I'm living on Nicollet Island, a little kind of, at that point it was kind of a rundown slum in the middle of the Mississippi River next to downtown Minneapolis. I'm driving taxi at night. I'm driving taxi from midnight till 7 in the morning. I get done with taxi. I go to my little, uh, little abode. I get my books. I go to the University of Minnesota. I'm studying art. But I'm also taking a class, the only summer class, that is being taught by John Berryman, the poet. And this is John Berryman the year before he commits suicide. This is John Berryman in the, the doldrums 
of alcoholism and brilliance. In this classroom, this little square box of a room with about 40 seats, are a variety of students. Some of them are there because they're literature majors or English majors. Some of them are there because, uh, you know, they, they need to fill time. I don't know why they're there, but they're there for a variety of reasons. In the front row, there's a blonde with a good tan who spends most of every class working on her nails. There is no air conditioning in the uni- this University of Minnesota classroom. At 10 o'clock in the morning, it's already warm. People are starting to, well, no one sits next to each other. Let's put it that way. No one's sitting next to each other in the sweltering heat of Minnesota in the summer. Berryman comes in about half the time. Sometimes he doesn't show up, and so someone else has to teach, and someone else comes in. But Berryman comes in. And this one day, this one day, Berryman comes in, and he's not hungover. He's still intoxicated. He's stumbling. He's literally having a hard time walking. He's having a hard time speaking. He comes into the classroom and he starts kind of wandering around, going from student to student, saying, who are you again? Who are you again? Asking people's names. And he gets to the blonde and he kind of looks at her and he says, are you sure you should be in this class? And she smiles at him and says, yes. And then he says, does anyone know what we're supposed to be doing today? And from the back of the room, someone says, Yeats. And Berryman goes, Yeats. And in that moment, he begins to recite Yeats poetry. This incredible, lush, baritone voice. He sinks into the poem. The words come out of his mouth. And it's not Yeats as rhyming, you know, dog. It's lyric. It's language singing around concepts. And the blonde stops working on her nails. And everyone else in the room stops and they're watching him. The words are rolling out and they're rolling into us and they're transformed. And the sweat which is hanging off of my nose, you know, isn't going to fall. It's held in suspension. And that was one of the best 45 minutes I've ever spent in my life. This is Elizabeth Ellis, and you've been listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. So the moment I said that I was a storyteller, experiences like that made sense. But also, as soon as I said I was a storyteller, the door opened. And the door opened to a number of experiences. And one of the things that opened up was the recognition that I have two mentors. And I'll talk in a a little bit about mentors and what that really means. But that I had two mentors, one of whom I had met before I declared myself a storyteller and then had an opportunity to work with after. Actually, both of them I had met before and then had an opportunity to work with after. The first of these guys was a guy by the name of Ken Fight. When I first met Ken Fight, He was a Jesuit. He was in Milwaukee. He was on the west side. He was working in poor neighborhoods. He was working with, as I was, a number number of other people working with what was known as Casa Maria, which was the Catholic worker house on the west side of Milwaukee. I'm working with the poorest of the poor on voluntary simplicity and also anti-war and anti-draft. The second time I met Ken Fight was in New York City in 1970-72, at a peace conference. And at that point, I don't know if he was still a Jesuit or not, but he had just come out of Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Clown College. And the third time I met him was the year after I declared myself a storyteller. I was at the Mythos Conference at St. Kate's. And at that Mythos Conference, it was, I mean, this was elders. Now who are the elders? These were J.L. Callahan when he had a black beard and hair. You know, Diane Wolkstein, you know, um, Joya Timpanella, Bob Wilhelm, Ken Fight, Ruvain Goat, who I'll come to in a moment. Sitting next to me in one of those, in Joya Timpanella's workshop, is a guy by the name of Mike Cotter, a farmer from Austin, Minnesota, who 
turns to me and says, I'm not sure why I'm here. And Joya Timpanella goes around the room and she says, tell a story, tell a story, tell a story, tell a story. And Mike Cotter tells the first story he's ever told publicly. And he's told, you know, I've been at performances where Mike's told the story of, of that moment. His moment of revelation, his moment of becoming a storyteller, of self-declaring. All of those people are at that conference. Ken Fight was at that conference, and when Ken Fight was at that conference, Ken Fight at this point identified himself not only as a storyteller, but more importantly as a holy fool. And a holy fool in the classic sense of the word, as prophetic. The storyteller in the role of speaking truth to power, of saying to the comfortable, this is your discomfort, and of saying to the discomforted, this is your comfort. Elizabeth Ellis talks about this notion. You know, Elizabeth Ellis knew Ken Fight. I knew Ken Fight. We, he was a, an important. He's, he's largely forgotten because m- not much of his repertoire is told, and not much of his repertoire is told these days because a his repertoire is incredibly specific. B much of it was improvisational. It was about creating a story, telling a story in a particular time and place for a particular audience. It was largely physical. Again, it, you know, because he had been through clown school, you know, there was he did the story as well as told the story. One of the stories he told, a little tiny story, you know, he lights a match and he sings, Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear flame. And then he blows the match flame out. And then he sings, Happy death day to you. And that's the story. So I met Ken at the Mythos Conference, and the next thing I know is he says, hey, I'm going to be teaching next summer, in the summer of 1980. I'm going to be teaching in Canada. Come on up. I'm going to be there for a whole month. If you've got nothing else to do, come on up. And that next summer I did come on up and went to the, the course he was teaching. And he was a great trickster figure. Because what he had done is he had invited about 20 people from around the world. He invited jugglers, flame flame eaters, you know, sword swallowers, you know, storytellers who bilingual, French, English, Spanish, mimes, clowns. He invited all these people. And some of them came for a day. Some of them came for a week. Some of them came for the entire month. There was this constant rotation of artists moving through this space. And every night, Ken would meet with a class of students who were taking the class, and he would do a little teaching with them, and he would give them assignments. And, but mostly what he would do is he would say to them, here's what tonight's lesson is. And then he would have one of the visitors, one of us, do the lesson for the night. And every morning we would meet. Every morning the visitors would meet, and we would share with each other what we knew, what we were learning, you know. The sound of the train, the, the sound of the traffic, you know. We would rehearse, we would practice, we would determine who would do that night's lesson. And that was my graduate degree. You know, that that month was my advanced, you know, course in the, re- the breadth and range of storytelling. You know, I don't juggle. I'm a crappy juggler. But I tried and I understood the principle of juggling. The other thing Ken would do is, and all of those people would do it, is they would talk about what they were reading and what people should be reading and, and about traditions. And that's an incredibly important thing. These days, I don't really hear a lot of storytellers, particularly young storytellers, people starting off. I don't hear them being, you know, they don't talk, we don't talk about bibliographies. We don't talk about variants and traditions. We don't talk about, you know, what the 20 versions of Cinderella, what they are, you know, what they mean. Why one and not the other? We don't, we don't say, oh, there's a book, here's a book on Australian aboriginals. It is an ethnographic study that's only available from this obscure British publisher. You must read it. <laughs> and so I go and I read it. I go to find the book and I read the book and the book is, you know, it tells me so much about the way storytelling is thought of, how it operates inside a different culture.
And later on, I have an opportunity to meet Aboriginal storytellers out of that cultural tradition, you know. And I had a deep appreciation of what they did, what they said, as a consequence of having had that background study. You know, it was not simply the foreign storyteller. It was the familiar storyteller from a foreign culture. The other mentor was a guy by the name of Ruvain Gold. Ruvain, traditional, Hasidic, Chicago. He sometimes jokingly said he only knew 22 stories. I heard him tell six stories, eight stories, over and over again over the course of 10 or 12 years. The lesson that he taught me, more than anything else, was the lesson of how to be inside the story and in the moment. And I mean truly inside the story and truly in the moment. When he would go to do a performance, oftentimes what he would do is he would start off, he'd spend... You know, before before the performance, he'd just spend time hanging out. He'd talk with audience people. He'd, you know, crack jokes. He'd listen to them. He'd find out what they were. And yet, when it was time for the performance to begin, he'd kind of shuffle onto stage. And then, in terms of performance, he often violated all the rules. It, you know, you're not supposed to laugh at your own jokes. You're not supposed to laugh before you come to the punchline. You're not supposed to lose control emotionally. But Ruvain would begin a story. And in the process of telling the story, he would laugh at the punchline before he got to it. He would cry. He could, inside a story, he could feel a story so deeply and tell it in a way that was so moving that that experience, like a wave, would roll into the audience. So I heard him tell stories in which, by the end of the story, Everyone in the audience is crying. And it's not a big story. It's not a profound story. But it is an intensely lived and felt story. I'm a little teary now saying this because each of these guys are dead. Ken Fight died in 1981. 40 years old in an automobile accident. Ruvain Gold died later than that. But he's been dead now for a long time. and Some of us who are now considered elders know who these people are. Know what they meant. At some point, you know, I will be dead and gone. And someone may remember me and whether or not I was of any use to them in telling stories. So let me talk about mentors. Wait, wait, you okay. told me a, a beautiful story about meeting Ruvain Gold for the first time at the National... No, not my, not my meeting him. Elizabeth Ellis meeting him. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. And Elizabeth tells this story. You know, she tells a story about how she had heard a Ruvain Gold story and it had impressed her. And how she had had a phone conversation with a young woman who was totally distraught and who had been separated from her parents for a long time. And she wound up telling that story on the phone to this girl who then said that she was going to call her parents. And then Elizabeth went to the went to the National Storytelling Festival and she thought that she would like to try to... She had heard that Ruvain was coming and she thought she would try to like to meet this man. And so when the, uh, the, the van pulls up with people from Chicago, people get out and there's some people she recognizes and some people she doesn't. And one of the guys who she doesn't recognize is this guy gets out with kind of, you know, kind of baggy pants and worn out jacket, old, old corduroy jacket and he's got a scruffy beard and he's long unkempt hair. And she goes up and she says to him, are you Ruvain Gold? And he says, who's Ruvain Gold? And she begins to relate to him, you know, the story and the experience of the phone call. And the guy says, and, and I, I, I should try, I can't really try to dip, duplicate Ruvain's voice because his voice was a high voice. It had kind of a squeak in it, kind of a nasal quality. And she starts to, you know, talk about this. And he says, well, what was the story? And so she winds up telling the story. And as she's telling the story, she's watching his face light up. And she gets to the end of the story and she says, you are Ruvain Gold. And he goes, perhaps I am. And she says, why, did you, why didn't you stop me? This is your story. And he says, oh, but you tell it so much better than I do. You know? I want to talk about mentors because 
it is what we need. And the problem is, is that most people think a mentor is somebody who you go to and you ask them a question and they give you an answer. Or they say, here's who you go talk to. Or they say, I'm going to help you get a gig. And that's not really what a mentor is. At least not for me. What a mentor is, is somebody who uh, reveals the power of stories and the meaning of stories in their lives by demonstration. You don't have to, they don't have to say anything to you. You have to be in the room with them. And you have to watch and listen. And oftentimes you don't even recognize when you are being mentored. A number of the mentors I've dealt with actually were, you know, they, were, they kind of pressed your, my buttons. Ruvain Gold could be... I did a workshop with him one time where he spent the whole first three days. He said, you can't ask any questions. You can only make statements. And if the statement doesn't start with I, I'm not going to answer it. I'm not going to respond to it. It was an irritatingly zen experience. And then for the next three days, he said, no statements, only questions. That's all we have. An irritatingly Hasidic Jewish experience. <laughs> There's only questions. But by the time we get to the questions, you know, they're asked in a different way after you've gone through the statements. So the, a, a good mentor reveals something to you. And what I learned about being in the moment from from Ruvain, I apply, but I don't tell the stories the way he tells stories. What I learned about Ken Fight about being improvisational, I apply, but I do not have that kind of physicality in my storytelling. I did for about one month. There was one month where literally I tried to sort of do the techniques that he used. It was uncomfortable for me and it looked silly to other people. But they were both mentors because from the experience of being with them, of watching how deeply connected they were to this process, I learned that it was worthwhile making the effort. I learned that at the point where one, if you're really going to be a storyteller, it is not going to be about the money. It's not going to be about whether or not you're on a festival stage. It's not going to be about whether or not you do a school residency. If you're really going to be a storyteller, it's about recognizing that on some level, you are committing yourself to an openness to life that will be painful. And it's a willingness to... Um, okay, Ken Fight used to tell a story about Francis. St. Francis. And he says, you know, Fran I don't even remember quite all the story... But Francis and his, uh, his assistant, they're, they're going from Pisa to Assisi. And the assistant says, geez, it's cold. And Francis says, yeah, isn't it great? We get to suffer like this? It's miserably cold. And the assistant says, it's getting dark. And Francis says, yeah, we're going to stumble in the dark. We'll probably fall in the mud. And the assistant says, well, if we get there real late, you know, the door will be locked. And Francis says, Yes, it will. We'll be arriving in the middle of the night. We'll be cold. We'll be hungry. We'll be, we'll be miserable. We'll be pounding on the door and we'll say, let us in and let us in. It's Francis. And they'll say, no, it isn't. Go away. And you know, all of this, all of this is to be who we are and is to embrace life. Now I can hear some of my listeners go, go well, wait a minute. You're saying that to have a mentor is to find a storyteller who who moves us, who's an example of, of what the direction you want to go in. And that is enough. Well, no, it's not enough. You know, to have, to have a mentor is to have a great gift. But it's not enough. Because you, you, you do need to learn technique. You do need to, to, to learn the, sort of the roots. You have to read widely and, we, and we, passionately. We've covered these things on other shows. Let's just talk about how you take care of that mentor relationship. First and for, first and interesting enough, first and foremost, you have to you have to recognize that it's there. And by the way, it's not always a storyteller. Good mentors are not always storytellers. There are, they can be other they can be in other realms. You know, um, they 
one of one of the people who are, who has been a mentor to me. Well, let me. Let me no, actually, there's two things here. One track is one of the people who's been a storyteller to me, a uh, mentor to me, was not a storyteller at all, but was uh, someone who was involved. Started off as a psychologist and then went from there to his following his bliss and became and went into astronomy and created an inflatable portable planetarium that he took to grade schools for ten years. You know, teaching kids how the universe works. And from there went to the Renaissance Fair Circuit and did 20 years on the Renaissance Fair Circuit. He was a mentor around the whole issue about what it meant to live simply, what it meant to, you know, how to utilize what was at hand in, in, to, create the, you know, to create the tools you need for survival. And that was a, that was a great lesson. One of, the, one of my mentors is Elizabeth Ellis, who is, my, who is also my peer. You know, she and I have known each other for a long time. We've we've told stories together. We've taught workshops together, and it is in teaching workshops with her that I have. She has been a mentor to me, and I think I to her because we will we trust each other enough to let each other have space, but we know each other's foibles enough to know when it's time to step in, <laughs> when it's time to say. And here's the other perspective, or you know, now we move on. That relationship is a is a has been an extremely productive relationship. How do you take care of mentors? I mean, part of it is is that you is to not ask for too much. Part of it is is to is to take opportunity to be observant, to be specific and clear when you can be. There, there's that. It helps sometimes to have, you know, have buy someone a drink or <laughs> feed them a meal and open provide some hospitality, be of some assistance. There, there, you know, there are a number of times when I've when I've been at festivals with Elizabeth and she's the featured performer. I'm not the featured performer, but I'm quite happy to schlep her bags. I'm happy to help her get from one place to another to walk with her, you know, to make sure that the time schedule gets met, you know, so that she doesn't have to deal with it. You know, and that's part of a mentor relationship is to be of assistance. When I was traveling in Canada once on a peace walk, we met these two individuals who were in their 90s, a couple, and they they had a younger couple who were in their early 20s, mm-hmm. and the older couple owned the house, and the and the younger couple stayed in the house with them, and took care of many of the physical needs, but the older couple in exchange, mentored them in different spiritual practices. Oh, yeah. It's very, I mean, this is very much a tradition. In the old, in many of the old storytelling traditions, we have the apprenticeship tradition, that one would literally become an apprentice to, to, a, story, uh, to a master storyteller. You would do very specific things, and in exchange, you would learn. I mean, if you think about the, the tradition of the Sufi stories and, and the, the Buddhist stories, if you think about all of the stories about how people learn spiritual practice. Over and over again, we have the mentor relationship where the apprentice is sweeping the walk, is making the bread, is doing the chores. And in the presence of the master, or at the direction of the master, even though it's frustrating, they're learning the craft, they're learning, they're learning the task, they're learning the secrets. Part of them... Well, it's interesting. If I were thinking about mentorship, if I wanted to talk to someone about mentorship, I would say, here, start reading those kinds of stories. And in terms of looking at those stories, in terms of hearing those kinds of stories, in terms of thinking about those stories, what's really taking place here? Why is this delay necessary? Why is this frustration uh, valuable? Why is it that that you know, how is it that we shed our assumptions about what should be and when we should have it so that we can be ready for what is when it is manifest. Man, this sounds really, we're really off the far end of the philosophical tree here. <laughs> this is part of the package. It feels to me like this is a really important discussion because in our society we have forgotten these basic ground rules of what it means to be mentored what it means to be a mentee. One of the, one of the things I see is that we, is we have all kinds of people who think that 
You know, they they want success really fast. We live in a culture of celebrity, and the celebrity is based upon uh, image and market. There's a difference between authenticity and image. There's a difference between capacity and market. So if the model is is that I'm going to become a storyteller, and then I'm going to get hired by schools, and then I'm going to go out and do festivals, and then I'm going to become, you know, I'm going to become Donald Davis. You know, that's that's not a very productive model. It is so much. If you think instead, well, here's another one of the stories that Ruvain told, and it's again, it's a real short story. One time, Zisha is in the back of the synagogue, and he's weeping. And someone comes up to him and says, Zisha, why are you crying? He says, I had a dream. What was the dream? He says, I dreamed I died and I went before the Holy One. Wow, what a great dream. And then what happened? And the Holy One, he said to me, Zisha. And I trembled. But, but the Holy One didn't say to me, Zisha, why weren't you Moses? Zisha, why weren't you Abraham? Zisha, why weren't you Solomon? No, no, the Holy One said to me, Zisha, why weren't you Zisha? You know, and so, I mean, if we're going to talk about mentoring, that's part of it. That's part of it is, for me to find out who Lauren is, I'm still trying to figure out how to tell a story. I've been at this 30 years, and I'm still trying to figure out how to tell a story. Sounds like, in some ways, having a, a good mentor relationship is like finding two bells that have the same tone you know the the one if you ring a bell and the other bell is hanging loose the other bell will actually ring and respond it's, it's kind of a well actually yeah or or part of maybe it's uh, I might be more inclined to say it's not le- two bells that have the same tone but understanding what the difference is between one tone and another tone I have no I have no interest in being Donald Davis and thank God Donald Davis has no interest in being me, <laughs> you know, um, and that's fine. So when I'm teaching storytelling, when I, when I go in the classroom and teach storytelling at my university course, I start, you know, every, first off, students all go, they're freaking out. You know, they want to know how they're going to be graded. And I have to say, uh, I co-teach with Nancy Donable, and we have to say the same thing every time. You're starting with an A. The issue is whether or not you will keep the A. And the measure of keeping the A is their willingness to risk. So I, I want to open this up a little bit. We have a couple people here. We're, we are currently at the tail end of the producers and organizers retreat here in New Orleans in 2009. Um, so we have a couple people in the room, and I want to invite if they wanted to make a comment or a question about the discussion we've been having. Um, I'm Paula Reed Nancaro, and I'm um, from Minneapolis. I'm with North Star Storytelling League. We have a website, www.northstarstorytelling.org. So I guess my question, in, in terms of mentoring, what I, what I hear is th- there's a lot about mentoring that involves giving up power and being receptive. And that's a scary thing for a lot of people because you make yourself uh, vulnerable to bad mentoring as well. I'm very intrigued by the idea that you can be mentored by your peers because part of the experience that I've had is that when you get into a mentoring relationship, you stop being peers. I mean, I have signals for myself as to what is obviously not good mentoring is when I, you know, when I start start feeling manipulated, when I start feeling like I'm being turned into the other person and, and it's not authentically, you know me is that all is it all gut or are there guidelines for figuring out when that's working and when it's not i'm not sure there are clear guidelines i know that in terms of people who i look to as mentors for me both in terms of people who were my elders and people who were my peers i i recognize that that there was a gut process about recognizing value those people who are my mentors, I, maybe I've just been fortunate in that they you know, the power dynamic did not come into play where I was felt like I was being manipulated or I felt like I was being abused, 
and I certainly would not want that to encourage that in any way. So if I'm working with someone and they're feeling like I'm abusing them, you know, walk away. There are, uh, on the other hand, there are there are people who have worked with me who I have felt that at some point I didn't I did need to push them away. I did need to say, you know, you don't you need to do some other work or you need to spend some time with other people. You know, I'm not gonna I can't solve your issues. And it is an issue. I mean, it is about defining style, developing style, your own style, your own, you know, your own recognition of what it is that you, that you want. Interesting enough, when you know, I mean, I have a reputation in terms of, in terms of working with people, coaching people. You know, uh, some people don't want to, don't want to be coached by me because I have a reputation of being pretty blunt. You know, being pretty, um, pretty saying pretty much. You know. Uh, <laughs> that ain't working. <laughs> with all with all due respect to Doug Lipman, I am not a Doug Lipman model for coaching. <laughs> you know, and if you want the Doug Lipman model, you should go see Doug. You know, but if you want if you want something that's a little uh, a little a, a little more a little hard, more direct, a little harder edged, you know, come talk to me. <laughs> you know, because there is a point where. I will tr- I will try to be very very clear in terms of working with someone around what I can do for them and and what they have to do for themselves and and I have no qualms about saying you know you know go away. This is Elizabeth Ellis and you've been listening to the Art of Storytelling with Children. So we only have time for one more question, so we're going to take one more question or comment. My name's Howard Lieberman. Um, I'm at the conference. I'm a member of the ProSIG. I'm on the board of directors of the Minnesota Fringe Festival, and the website there is fringefestival.org. And um, I didn't know that this discussion was going to focus as much as it has on mentoring. I'm a person who has been, for most of his life, kind of a vagrant and a, a vagabond, and uh, and I think that kind of grows out of being orphaned, actually, at a at a pretty young age, and finding my way my own way through the world. And for me, mentoring has always been a process of finding people who have certain skills or even just personalities that I would like at some point or I wanted at some point, to emulate. And oftentimes, I've used people as mentors, and I don't think they were very aware that they were mentoring me. I just, when I used to be a printer, I'd follow what the old guy printers, and they were all guys, what the old guy printers were doing, and I'd figure out if I could do that, and then how to adapt that to to me, Howard Lieberman. And I wouldn't become John Smith. I'd become Howard Lieberman, but adding a a piece of John Smith into my psyche. And I think people who look too hard to find a single mentor to be their, their, uh, I don't know, their, um, their roadmap to success are limiting themselves. I, I, I think that you can, you can learn as much from a homeless person on the street as you can from the best teller um, that you can from the best uh, whatever it is you're trying to become and Lauren knows that that, that, uh, on a lot of levels he's been a mentor to me and um, in his abrupt style and just say abrupt style that that, that's okay that's okay I guess rather than just Stating, I thought we should have a question. It, it's my view that to be a good storyteller, and I, when I say good, I don't mean that you're on the main stage at every festival in the country, or that your, you know, um, your your name is is the one that people um, look to first when they decide to have a um, a storyteller on their program. But to be a good success, a good storyteller means that you are you have compelling stories whether they're the spinning of old folk tales through your eyes or um, experiences that you've seen and shared um, as told through your eyes. But to be a good storyteller, 
at one point, do you, do you need to lose yourself? Or do you need to be yourself? I don't know. I, I, I've got lots of thoughts about that. But I'd just be curious to know what, what the old curmudgeon um, has to say about something like that. It, well, it's interesting because it, if, I, if I think about what is the essential relationship of, uh, you know, when I'm teaching class, I talk about the menage a trois of storytelling, that there is the story, there is the teller, there is the audience, and, and there are relationships between all three. Um, you know, the story has a life of its own, and, and when you lose yourself, I mean, what you're doing is you are opening yourself up to have the story tell itself in, 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 and you are a vessel of transmission. And yet at the same time, when you are yourself, that process of transmitting the story is filtered through a very particular person, through a very particular personality, through a very particular set of, of voice, of gesture, of body, of, you know, um, whether you use props or whether you don't use props, or whether you use music or movement or whatever it is. And if a story wants to be told, <laughs> right, that's how, that's how much credence I give the story. If the story wants to be told and, and wants to be told through you, the more you are yourself, the more particular that telling becomes. So that if one story was told by six or seven different people, the, each expression would be unique and specific. And the story doesn't lose any power in the process. What the story gains in the process is, is efficiency. Be, and with various audiences, the role of the storyteller is to tell the story. And you have a relationship to the audience. And the, the better your relationship to the audience, the more, res and this is where for storytellers it isn't about telling, it's about listening. The more you listen to the audience, the, the easier it is to transmit that story, to be the vessel the you know, for that story. And ultimately then the audience has a relationship with the story. They may have a relationship with the teller as well. But what you want in the end is for the audience to have their relationship with the story. And so... Um, that to find that balance between losing oneself to the story and to the telling of the story and being yourself in terms of how you tell the story. Again, going back to the, those mentors of mine, you know, to go back to being uh, in the moment, you know, to being in the story. It's very, it's very difficult to do. And if if you're if you think as a storyteller that it's easy, you haven't you haven't done enough work, because it is it's very hard to do, but it's it is the it is the most rewarding experience you can have as a storyteller. We have to move on to our <laughs> offer section. Um, so, do you have an offer for the audience? Um, yeah. Well, let's see. My um, my offer for the audience. Um, if anyone wants to write me, if anyone wants to call me, and if anyone wants to, if anyone wants to, uh, um, I, here's my offer. I, I offer, I'll offer you a bibliography. I'll offer you a bibliography of, of uh, books that uh, I think are valuable for someone who wants to deepen their appreciation of storytelling. There's an offer. <laughs> Good. That's great. That's a wonderful resource. So you have a website? I do, but it's um, it's bad. This is the area where I've fallen down in terms of technology, and it's badly out of date. And but it is uh, it's through the Illinois um, storytelling website. So if you go to www.storytelling.org, um, I think, and then forward slash Nimi N I E M I. Will get you to my my little my little website. And I just want to remind the listeners that um, I've actually had several shows on mentoring already. In particular, Mark Morey's show on the art of mentoring in the Native tradition. And I recommend going to the website. It's not available for purchase. Uh, Mark uh, did not sign a contract, so it's not available to be sold. But you can listen on the website. You can go and search for it through the search box. And if you're interested in learning more about storytelling, I do have a free storytelling e-course at storytellingwithchildren.com backslash storytelling. It's the Zen of storytelling in seven easy steps. We talk about many of the ideas 
that Lauren talked about during the show. So you have any final words for the international storytelling movement? Keeping in mind that 30% of my audience is overseas. Well, I would I would reference a uh, uh, a famous folktale of be bold, be bold, but not too bold. <laughs> I want to support... I support the broadest definition of storytelling and um, my commitment is to authenticity and to risk. So, I do. Go forth. Do. <laughs> I think that the the part of this conversation I want to bring to the forefront as we end the show here is, is this idea that we as storytellers have many resources to draw on and we don't have to do it alone. And we have many potential mentors that we can work towards and work with. And if you don't have the money, you might have the brawn. If you don't have the brawn, you just might have the time. And many of the people in the storytelling movement who are worthy of being your mentor, they don't have either, or you know, they don't have the time. They're at the towards the end of their lives. They may not have the physical ability to do certain tasks. And they would really appreciate your help if you can be consistent, reliable, and true and authentic to them. So reach out, and if they're not interested, they'll let you know. Yep, and I thanks for the conversation. Oh, it's been a great having you on the show. And thank you all from the audience for listening in and joining in. Um, even though the volunteers of the Minnesota Fringe Festival run screaming from the ticket booth when they hear me say it, this is Brother Wolf, and we're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.